0: Okay, turn in your Bibles to the Lord Jesus did um, in this chapter. We looked at the first half last week. So we are going to begin reading in verse 18. And actually, I would like to read through the whole thing down to verse 34. Now, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, perhaps, excuse me, permit us to go away into the herd of the swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea, And perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and uh, they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. So, Lord, would you add your blessing to this, the word of the Lord? And may you minister to us, may you teach us, may you speak to us this morning. May our hearts be open to receive and hear all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we continue in this chapter, if you take a moment here in your Bible and just flip back to chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which we completed a couple of weeks ago, If you have a red-letter Bible, you'll see that there's tons of red everywhere. In fact, there's nothing but red in in those three chapters because it was Jesus, of course, who was speaking and teaching. And the translators and publishers have put it in red for us so that it kind of is an easy visual for us to understand the script of what's happening. And as we looked at last week, the first half of chapter 8, if you'll just let your eyes kind of flow across the page there, You'll see there's a fair amount of red, but there's still a fair amount of black in terms of uh, what's being told as the story and what Jesus actually said. But when you come to today's story, as you look at verses 18 through 34, you'll see that there are four times that Jesus spoke, and there were very short sentences. And the reason I draw your attention to that this morning is that this story is fully and totally about Jesus, isn't it? But there's only a few times that he spoke. And the thing that struck me as I was studying this, and I could have given this message this morning five or six different titles, is what does it take? What does it take for us to see Jesus as he truly is, to understand who he is? He just spent uh, you know, a period of time, 45 minutes, an hour, two hours, I don't know what it was when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, And now as he's been traveling, now this is still the same day, but now we're into the evening of that day. And the people who had been gathering around Jesus were there, of course, to hear him, to see him. They had been experiencing miracles. They're about to experience more. But Jesus knew it was time to withdraw and to go somewhere different. And so in verse 18, we find... Uh, It says, then, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Don't lose sight of that. We'll come back to that in a moment, because note that Jesus gave a command. And when Jesus, the Lord, gives a command, you understand that command must take place. And what was his command? We are going to depart and go to the other side. But as he gave that command, they were about to go get in the boat, another little thing happened, a little scene took place. Verse 19, then a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Seems like an odd answer, doesn't it, to someone who says, hey, I want to come and be a part of your church i want to follow you you see this certain scribe as we're told in verse 19 and the scribes were usually a person of means or wealth these are people who had everything they had all the luxuries of life and jesus answers people in the way that they need to be answered he's never rude he's never cruel and certainly his response is none of those things But his response is very accurate. His response is very truthful. And Jesus said to this man, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so Jesus gives him this answer, saying, meaning, following me has a cost. If you follow me, you're going to have to give up something. And to this particular man, not too different, really, than remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, Lord, I've kept the law from my youth and I've done all these things and, you know, I, I'm pursuing righteousness, and, but something's missing, something's empty within me. What else is there? What must I do? And remember, Jesus said to that man, because he knew that that man had a problem with materialism and with his commitment to his fortune, He said, sell everything that you have and give it away and then come and follow me. And we're told in that story that that man went away very sad because the cost was too great. He couldn't let it go. And why did Jesus say that to the rich young ruler? Why did Jesus say this to this scribe? Because you see, following Jesus does cost us something. You see, no matter how you came to Christ, how I came to Christ whether we prayed a prayer and walked an aisle or we raised our hand quietly during a prayer at the end of a sermon or maybe we were on our knees in our room or maybe somebody was evangelizing and shared the gospel with us and God touched our heart. You see, whenever we said we would follow Jesus, whenever we said, yes, Lord, I want to be forgiven, I want this new life, I'm tired of of the life of the flesh and the, the life of of meaninglessness. Lord, I want to follow you. I want to be a part of your kingdom. I want to know who you are. I want that forgiveness. I want that peace. You see, all of those things we have, but you see, to do those things, to follow Jesus means in order to follow him, we have to leave something behind. We have to give something up. There is a cost to following Jesus. The cost for this man was comfort and worldliness and riches and what Jesus was calling him to was a life of full uh, reliance upon the Lord. That he wanted him to learn to be fully dependent. I mean, listen to what Jesus said again. Think about living your life this way. Jesus is not uh, using hyperbole. He's not stretching or taking a, you know, making it something that it's not. He says, foxes have holes. So we're talking about animals in nature you know, out in the wild. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Remember we saw at the end of chapter 6 as Jesus said, you know, God takes care of, of everyone, right? He says that the lilies of the field, the, the grass, the flowers, they all have what they need. God provides everything that's needed in nature. And He says, how much more will your heavenly Father who cares for you provide for you? And so this man, this scribe, now has to count the cost. He now has to understand what it means to be fully dependent on the Lord. And, and you see, this is a call for a disciple, for a follower of Jesus. You know, we might think sometimes that these are requirements for ministers or maybe even for missionaries more appropriately, right? They've got to sell everything and give up everything to go do what they understand God's call on their life to be. But you see, this is the call for a disciple. This is the call for anyone who would follow Christ. It is something that we all must consider. Now, this is the first use of this term or this phrase, Son of Man, that Jesus uses of himself. It's the first time it's used in the the book of Matthew, and it's used many times throughout the Gospels. And it was Jesus' favorite term to refer to himself, but it comes from... Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, if you'd like to go there and look it up on your own, but it's a messianic title. It's a title that the Lord gave to Daniel as he was looking forward to who the Messiah would be, and here Jesus is taking that title to himself, and so when he used the title the Son of Man and speaking back to this scribe, certainly the scribe would have known what Jesus was referring to that he was the Messiah, and he's saying, if you want to follow me, if you truly consider me to be the Messiah, then you understand that something has to go in your life. Now, in verses 21 and 22, we find a similar situation. It says, another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That sounds a little harsh to our ears, doesn't it? But let's let's take this apart. Let's let's peel it and understand it. Understand first there in verse 21 what the man was saying or the disciple was saying to Jesus. He said, Lord, let me. Maybe you want to circle that. If you're a, a circler or a writer or a highlighter in your Bible, circle that phrase, Lord, let me. When we start our prayer with, Lord, let me, whatever comes after it is going to be a very self centered prayer, isn't it? And we could fill it in for whatever we want. I mean, everybody here has a Lord, let me prayer on your lips this morning, in your heart, in your mind. But this disciple came to him and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. You see, this man certainly had a priority problem. He, he liked what he was hearing. Perhaps he sat through the whole sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the greatest sermon ever given, in my opinion. And as he sat through that, he said, yeah, but I hear what you're saying. But I got some other stuff I need to go do first before I come and follow you. I heard the call to follow you, Lord, but there's things I need to do. And Jesus answers him with this phrase, follow me. So there's the call again to the disciple, to this disciple, to all disciples. It's the same phrase that Jesus used to call all of the disciples, the 12, to come and be with him. But notice what he says. You know, and earlier he said to his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Here he says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What in the world is he referring to? This second man, a disciple of Jesus, requested that he be permitted to return home and bury his father. This man's father was not dead or even at the point of death. This disciple was simply saying he wanted to return home and wait until his father died. And then he would return and follow Jesus. His request demonstrated he felt discipleship or following Jesus was something he could pick up or lay down at will. He put material concerns and family concerns ahead of following Jesus, for he apparently wanted to receive the estate from his father when he died. Jesus' response, let the dead bury their own dead, showed that following him carried with it the highest priority. Remember, the man said, Lord, let me first. And Jesus changed his priorities and says, no, you need to first follow me jesus said here that the physically dead could be cared for by those who are spiritually dead and you know we all have people in our families don't we who don't know christ and we pray for them and we love them and we long for them to come to know christ and we should that's only right that's only fitting but for us to think that um, if i if i go or if I, if I go follow the Lord and I don't stay here and really try to care for them or in the sense of, you know, I'm going to be the light, I'm going to be the gospel, and indeed we should be. But God will bring his gospel to those people in his way and in his time. And he wants to use you and me. Make no mistake about that. But you and I, let's not forget this, we're not the Messiah, are we? We're not Jesus, And so God will use whom he will use in these situations. And we need to understand that it's, you know, more important. And, you know, we live in a world where people say, you know, make sure you have good self-care and all that. Well, there's a bit of self-centeredness to that. We should take care of ourselves. But when it comes to spiritual matters, we absolutely should take care of ourselves. You see, I'm no good to anybody unless I'm getting filled up. Unless I'm having time alone with the Lord, unless I'm reading his word, I'm no good. I'm an unfit vessel, if that's the case. Another person said, Matthew eight twenty two might be expressed in a similar manner. Let the spiritually dead bury the physical, physically dead. Jesus was not asking this man to be disrespectful to his father, who was not yet dead, but to have right priorities in life. It's better to preach the gospel and give life to the spiritually dead than to wait for your father to die and bury him. And in reality, what all this comes down to is excuses and reasons, doesn't it? This rationalization. I have a friend whom I love dearly, and he, this is his favorite phrase about anything. When things settle down, then I'll dot, dot, dot. And he says this to me all the time. And every time he says it, it's usually in in connection with the Lord or with, you know, well, when this settles down, then I'll follow, I'll get back to following Jesus when this thing in my life settles down. Or when this or that happens, and when these other priorities happen, when they fall into place the way I want them to fall into place, then I'll follow Jesus. And that's what these people were saying, isn't it? When these things happen, when these other things in my life, which by the way are higher priority than my relationship with Jesus or following Him, when that happens, when these things fall into place, then I'll follow you, Lord. In John 21, at the end of the story, uh, as Peter was with Jesus and a couple of other disciples there on the shore of Lake Galilee, we find a little situation. John 21, 20. Then Peter, turning around, he's having this conversation with Jesus. He saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, which was the, John's reference to himself. This is the Apostle John. And he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, uh, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? And here's what Jesus said, Jesus said, If I will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me, Peter. See, sometimes we're too concerned about other things. And we think that our concern for other people, which in in the right context can be a good thing, it can be godly, it can be healthy, but it can also turn to an unhealthy thing because we've uh, inadvertently switched priorities and we've put that person or that situation ahead of, of the Lord, so Jesus is referring to the issue of priorities and cost in following him. Now, um, some of you may know the name Darlene Jeck. She's the lady who was with Hillsong Worship when they sort of became f- famous around the globe, uh, the blonde-haired lady who would always see singing, and you know, she kind of disappeared from their scene a few years ago. She had been with him for 25 years, she wrote the song, um, oh my goodness, I had it on the tip of my tongue, I didn't write it down. We've sung it many times, we've all sung it if you've been in church any length of time. We've all sung her church, she's written many, many songs. And here's what she said uh, after she left Hillsong, after having uh, found, finding out that she had breast cancer. And that's why she kind of disappeared from the scene. And she and her husband went out to plant another church in a more remote part of Um, Australia, where she's from, and this was from a book she wrote, but here's what she said about this issue of the cost of following Christ. She said, "...being a Christian is not a lifestyle choice. It's surrendering your heart and your choices, your thought life, your opinions. It's yielding my will," she explained. "...people have to understand salvation." Even when people are saying yes to Jesus, you have to understand that you are actually saying yes to laying down your life. You're not just given something to live for, it's something to live and to die for. She also advises that believers not pick and choose which parts of the Bible they like or they don't like or want to adhere to, and encourages people to disciple followers of Christ to follow Jesus and not to follow a church or a pastor. I love what she said there because their movement, as it became what it is today, people were following the pastor. They were following the movement. She said, no, no, it's about Jesus. It's not about these other things. It's not about people. It's not about personalities. Luke said in Luke 14 on this very topic... Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, this is Jesus speaking, and does not hate his father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Again, priority of relationship. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it lest after he has laid the foundation that is not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish you see this is the same thing Jesus is saying here in Luke 14 that he's saying here in Matthew 8 to these two people this scribe and this other man, one of his disciples, who were wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus. J. C. Ryle who's one of my favorite authors, wrote this on this passage, and I uh, wanted to share with you it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but i as I read it, I just thought, man, this is so. Uh, appropriate for what we're considering this morning there is something deeply impressive in both of these sayings the ones we've just studied here in Matthew they ought to be weighed well by all professing Christians they teach us plainly that people who show a desire to come forward and profess themselves to be true disciples of Christ should be warned plainly excuse me to count the cost before they begin are they prepared to endure hardship Are they ready to carry the cross? If not, they are not yet fit to begin. They teach us plainly that there are times when a Christian must literally give up all for Christ's sake, and when even such duties as attending to a parent's funeral must be left to be performed by others. Such duties some will always be ready to attend to, and at no time can they be put in comparison with the greater duty of preaching the gospel and doing Christ's work in the world. It would be well for the churches of Christ if these sayings of our Lord were more remembered than they are. It may well be remembered that the lesson they contain is too often overlooked by the ministers of the gospel, and that thousands are admitted to full communion who were never warned to count the cost. Nothing, in fact, has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of his or her experience. It has been painfully forgotten that numbers alone do not make strength and that there may be a great quantity of mere outward religion where there is very little real grace in the life of the believer. Let us all remember this. Let us keep back nothing from young professors and inquirers after Christ. Let us not enlist them on false pretenses. Let us tell them plainly that there is a crown of glory at the end, but let us tell them uh, no less plainly that there is a daily cross in the way of that crown. Let the prayer, Lord, increase our faith, always form part of our daily petitions we never perhaps know the weakness of our faith until we are placed in the furnace of trial and anxiety. Blessed and happy is that person who finds by experience that his faith can stand the fire, and that he can say along with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. So Jesus addressing these concerns of these would-be disciples. Now we come back to the story as he's getting in the boat. Remember in verse 18, it says that he saw the great multitudes coming and he gave a command to depart to the other side. Here in verse 23, it says, now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. Let me point out the obvious that disciples should always follow Jesus in everything he does. Remember Jesus said of himself, of his relationship with his heavenly father, he says, I only do what I see the father doing and I only say what he tells me to say. You see, disciples should follow Jesus. Verse 24, And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves, but he was asleep. And the language here indicates, when it says the boat was covered with waves, that water was crashing into the boat. So they're in this little fishing boat, which is not very big, so you think of 12 or 13 men, on a boat that's, that's not all that big. And if you've ever been on these smaller boats, I mean, it's kind of crazy. Uh, and you're out on the middle of a lake. Now, now, Lake Galilee was something like five or seven miles wide at the top. And it was about 20 miles long, I believe. So it's a big lake. And as they got out on this lake, and if you could go there and see it, on one side there are uh, mountains. It's about 680 or so feet below sea level. So the winds come in off of the Mediterranean and come in through the valleys, and then they rush down to the lower parts. Uh, And the the shores of Galilee on the eastern shores are lower, and on the western shores they're higher, so the the winds rush in and rush down and then up. And they say that waves can, can get to seven or eight feet, which is crazy, right, on a lake. But that's what was happening. And so this great tempest arose, this storm, So that the boat was covered with waves, but Jesus was asleep. So now we have a picture here of the humanity of Jesus, don't we? This storm, this violent storm on a tiny little fishing boat. And Jesus is asleep. And the disciples, most of whom were experienced fishermen, are on the boat panicking for their lives. In fact, the other gospel accounts, Mark and Luke, give us some more detail. But Mark in particular, I believe it's Mark who says... They, they woke Jesus up and they said, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? Jesus, did you stop caring about us because you're, you're too tired? You know, this is the disciples now rebuking Jesus, right? Not a good idea. So they're rebuking Jesus and they're saying, don't you even care? You're sleeping and we're, we're about to die. Come on, Lord. Then the disciples came to him. They woke him up and saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, now notice, this is Jesus talking to them. The storm is raging. He says, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Remember he said at the beginning, I said, don't forget, Jesus commanded that they should get into the boat and go to the other side. You see, Jesus had given them a command. Why would Jesus get in the boat, get in the boat that's going to sink? Why would Jesus, the Son of God, who's on a mission from God, literally, put his life at at risk and say, uh, I'm just maybe a year or so into my ministry and I'm just gonna go down with the ship. My ministry is over. You see, they didn't hear what he said and isn't that so true of us so often? This is why we need to read God's word over and over and over because we don't hear it, we don't see it. Jesus commanded them, let's get into the boat and go to the other side. Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Jesus rebuked their fear and their unbelief. He wasn't upset at their request of waking him. We shouldn't think that Jesus was in a bad mood or that he was upset at their fear, uh, but rather he was, excuse me, he was upset at their fear because fear and unbelief go together. And then he arose, that we are told in verse 26, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. You see, here's the way we want Jesus to work in our lives, right? We want Jesus to speak to the storm, and then we want him to speak to us. But you see, he speaks to the disciples in the storm, and then he spoke to the storm. Something that we need to remember. So often, our faith, the weakness of our faith, needs to be rebuked first, Because of our fear and our lack of trust while we're in the storm, rather than having the Lord calm the storm first. You see, that's what we want. Lord, make it go away. Jesus undoubtedly knew the storm was coming, and certainly he could have prevented it, but he permitted it that he might teach his disciples some lessons. You see, the storm came because they obeyed the Lord. You see, they got into the boat to go to the other side. They were obedient to what Jesus said. Remember, it said they followed him into the boat. So the storm came because they were obedient and not because they disobeyed him. Jesus was asleep because he rested confidently in the will of his father. And this is what the disciples should have done. Instead, they became frightened and accused Jesus of not caring. Matthew wanted his readers to contrast the, quote, little faith of the disciples with the, quote, great faith of the Gentile centurion. Remember just a little bit earlier in the same day? We looked at it last week. Remember the centurion who came to Jesus? And he said, I've got a servant in my house who's dying, and he's paralyzed, and his life is terrible, and he's being tormented daily. He's suffering. And he said, Lord, if you're willing, right, you can heal him. And Jesus said, I'll come to your house. I'll heal him. And he said, No, 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 Lord, you don't have to come to my house. All you got to do is say the word. You see, I'm a man in authority. I'm a centurion. I know how authority works. And I, I say to one person, Do this, and he does it. And to another servant, Do that, and he does it. You see, that's how it works. If you have authority, if you have true authority, you give a command, and it happens. And he says, So I know how that works, and I know who you are. You're the Lord. So all you have to do from where you're standing right there on that little piece of dirt is to say, be healed. My servant will be healed. And Jesus turned around in that moment and said to his disciples, we looked at this last week, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel, ever. And here I am, a Gentile Roman centurion, a dog, so to speak, by, as considered by the Jews. And here he is, with this incredible faith and here you are in the storm and you don't even have did you forget what happened earlier today when we were together did you see how I provided did you see how I healed did you see the leper do you remember that, that man that I cleansed and the healing that I brought to people and and you're worried about a storm a wind storm a wave storm on, on a lake some has said as we seek to apply this to our lives you see this was a literal storm that happened they were in a very violent storm but so often we want to take this and look at it and apply to our lives and then we we go you know the storms of life right some have said there are storms of correction and some have said there are storms of perfection storms of correction and storms of perfection you see God uses the storms whether they be a literal physical storm Where We're fearful for our lives, or maybe it's just difficulties or trials or circumstances that we're going through, storms of correction or storms of perfection. Someone has said, you're either going into a storm, in a storm, or coming out of a storm, or about to go back into the next storm. You say, now, wait a minute, that's kind of a bleak view. Well, isn't that somewhat true in our lives? You know, we hit that point in life where there's this calm, and we're like, man, this is great. I wonder what's about to happen. You ever have that thought? I do. With regard to storms of correction, there's this amazing uh, passage in Hebrews chapter 12. And it's the passage that talks about the chasing or the correction or the discipline of the Lord and he says and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons my son do not despise the chastening of the lord nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him for whom the lord loves he chastens and he scourges every son whom he receives if you endure chastening god deals with you as with sons for what son is there or daughter uh, if there it is there whom a father does not chasten or correct but if you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. You see, God must correct us because he loves us. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For our fathers, indeed, for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, that is God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness storms of correction and storms of perfection well they arrived to the other side of the lake in verse 28 and when Jesus had come to the other side to the country of the Gergesenes or uh, another passage calls it the Gadarenes which is the same thing uh, there met him two demon possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Mark and Luke, in their accounts, wrote of one demon-possessed man. Here in Matthew's account, he says there are two. But it would seem that one of the men was more uh, predominant in uh, maybe his possession of being demon-possessed and that he was maybe more the leader Uh, So I don't think there's a conflict in the Gospels. I think that it's kind of like, you think about when you tell stories of something that happened. You know, you see a car accident on the road. You don't tell about all the other cars there. You might say, hey, there was this one guy who cut a guy off and the other guy T-boned him or in the intersection. So it was, you know, the guy who cut the other person off. And so that's what we talk about. That's what the police officer wants to know about. And in this situation here, there were two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, but there seemed to be one who spoke. And in verse 29, suddenly they cried out. Maybe they even spoke in unison together because they are demon-possessed. What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to, to- torment us before the time? Now, I always find it interesting when I read these stories that the demons knew who Jesus was. And I find it so sad and a bit disconcerting that there's so many people who don't know who Jesus is. How is it that the demons, that the devil knows who Jesus is, but so many people don't? Because they said, what do we have to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? They knew who he was. They knew of his power. Now, a good way off from them was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. The other gospels tell us. Jesus asked them their name, and they said that we are legion, for we are many. And a legion can be as many as 6,000 in a Roman legion. Now, one demon's bad enough, right? Nobody wants to mess around with one demon. Can you imagine Having many, having a legion of demons, having thousands of demons inside of one human body, it is beyond comprehension. And we are told earlier uh, in this passage that the people wouldn't even go that way, wherever these these two men were, whatever cave or graveyard that they lived in, people wouldn't go by there. You might think, you know, for example, there's a short path, if I go from here to there, I can get to where I need to go pretty quickly but I can't because that's past the tomb where these men live. So I'm going to have to go up and around and take the long way. I can't go that way because Satan has blocked the way with his possession of these men. So these demons, after having identified themselves to Jesus and realizing who he was, the demons begged him. So the demons knew who Jesus was, right? Saying, if you cast us out, Permit us to go away into the herd of swine. You see, there are fallen angels. We're told about that in Revelation, the book of Revelation, where we're told that the tail of the dragon took with him a third of heaven, and it seems to be referring back to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, where we find the story of how Satan fell from grace, fell from heaven, fell from the presence of the Lord. And it would seem that he took a third of the angels of heaven with him. But now we're talking about not angels, but demonic spirits. Demonic spirits, we know from Scripture, we don't have a time to do a study on demonology and all that stuff today, and it's a little bit unnerving, frankly, to do it. But demonic spirits do not want to be unembodied. They prefer to have a host. They prefer to have a body. And so these demons now being cast out of this man or out of these men said, well, at least let us go into the pigs. And Jesus said to them, and this is the only word Jesus speaks in this passage, and that's why I asked you to look at this earlier. Again, if you look at verses 28 to 34, there's one word in red in verse 32, and it's the word go. That's all Jesus said. So here's what happens. They pull up in the boat. These two men meet them. This whole interaction takes place with these demons speaking to Jesus, and it's this, this crazy thing happening. And the only thing Jesus said in that whole situation was, go. And he commanded these demons to leave these men. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine... now. You know, a human body is a a sentient being, meaning a person who has ability to think and and to verbalize and all those things, and the demons could use the voice of the man and they could use their hands and their feet and you know they could speak to other people. But here we are in pigs. Remember they're demons, they're not God. They didn't give the pig a voice, and what happened is the demons enter the pigs is that the pigs or the swine became so frenzied. I mean, what happened was so crazy, they immediately did the only thing they could think of, which is to run down the hill into the water and kill themselves. And then those who kept them fled. And they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. You know, we can make some observations here. I mean, whenever demons are involved, we know what's not good. We know that demons are not doing anything for anybody's good, right? That no one's good is in mind. Certainly the glory of God is not in mind. Only their own ill will, only their own evil intents are what is in mind. And I don't know if you've ever encountered someone who's demon possessed. I've only done that a couple of times in my life. But if you want to do that, I would suggest you go into the inner city, into the homeless population, into people who were ravaged by drugs. You see, drugs, according to the Bible, we, we often miss these things. When you look at the lists of things that are of the flesh or things that are of the devil, one of those things in those lists, as we look at you know uh, lying and stealing and cheating and murder and adultery and all those things, in that list is always the word sorcery. And the word sorcery is the Greek word pharmakia. And the devil often uses drugs, illegal drugs, things that people should not be putting in their body, as a gateway to gain access to their heart and their soul. And I don't believe, and there's a study out there I've published uh, on the uh, podium, on the uh, Welcome Center, uh, that I don't don't believe a believer that a Christian can be demon-possessed. And there's a a sheet full of scriptures on that, so we're not talking about that, but we're talking about people who don't know Christ. And it is scary to meet people to to think that they could be demon-possessed. Just because someone takes drugs doesn't mean they're demon-possessed, by the way. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that it is a gateway for Satan to come in. And there is a sense, if you are a spiritually aware and sensitive person, and you've been born again by the Spirit of God, when you encounter these things, it just makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And this situation, you know, we're not told what happened with the disciples, right? The disciples are here witnessing this whole thing. And I imagine that these guys were behind Jesus. And not out front. They weren't standing beside him going, okay, Lord, I'm ready to go into battle with you. What do you want us to do? You want us to take care of these guys for you? No, I don't think they were doing that. I think they were behind Jesus and maybe even still on the boat, ready to make a quick getaway if they had to. But we're told in verses 33 and 34 then those who kept them fled. That is, those who kept the flock of the, the the herd of the swine, and they went away into the city and they told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. You know, we need to understand something here. This this passage proves something to us, as does the rest of the scriptures whenever it speaks of Satan or the devil. There is a real devil. His power is limited. Jesus is the great deliverer from the devil. And as evidenced here, the world rejects Jesus. As Jesus is evidenced here that they asked him to leave. In verse 34, behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Now, you would think if you stopped right there, they would be like, wow, this is pretty cool, man. We need to go see this guy who cast out the demons. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Wow, they asked Jesus to leave. Would you just please leave? No concern for the men who were demon-possessed, no concern for their souls, no concern for their lives. We're not told the backstory of these men. Perhaps they had families. Perhaps they had children. Perhaps they had wives. And this horrible thing happened where demons entered their lives and took possession of them. And instead, these people seem to be more concerned about their money about the the money that they, they, they just lost when the swine all ran into the sea. Hey, Jesus, you just killed our prophet. You need to get out of here, okay? You're costing us money. Just leave. Now, this happened, we saw this happen in the book of Acts. I don't think it's a stretch at all because, remember, Paul was... In a city, and he was preaching, and there was a, a demon possessed girl following him, and she was, oh, these are the servants of the most high god so the de- the demon in her was again recognizing that Jesus was in these men, that the spirit of God was in these men and Paul turned around and he was annoyed we're told in the scriptures, and he turned around and he said, "Leave her and he cast the demon out, and you know what happened? The men who owned her because she was a slave got mad at Paul because she brought them money through soothsaying, fortune-telling, all those kinds of things. And because he killed their hope of profit through that girl, they got mad at Paul and they were, they were going to kill him, as I recall the story. So here we have the whole city coming out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him, they said, get out of here. So we have, if you will, three prayers in this event The demons begged Jesus to send them into the swine. That was their prayer. Jesus, when you pray, you pray to Jesus, right? You pray pray to God. The demons asked Jesus to send them into the swine. Jesus granted that request. The citizens begged him to leave, and he did that. And then we're told, uh, again, in the other accounts, that this man came to Jesus after he was healed. In his right mind, it says he came to Jesus and he says, Lord, let me go with you. Let me follow you. And we know that Jesus told this man, you know, I think you should just stay here and tell everybody what God's done for you. You give a testimony of what God's done for you. I know you'd like to come follow me, but... What God's done for you, you've got a story that nobody else can tell, right? How many people can say, I was possessed by thousands, not just demon-possessed. Thousands of demons were inside of me. I was naked. I was a ravaging lunatic. And, you know, however long he was possessed, and then Jesus walked up and just said, go. And all of a sudden, my wits came back. I encountered the Son of God. I heard what the demons said. They said with my voice, Who are you, you son of God? And they said to him, You know, are you here to torment us before our time? You see, they understood that in the book of Revelation, they're going to be cast into the pit of hell. They're going to be bound. Their leader, Satan, the devil, will be bound with a chain and thrown into hell. You see, they knew. They knew prophecy. And this man heard all this, and Jesus is saying, Yeah, just... Go tell them what the Lord did for you. You see, don't underestimate the power of your testimony. You see, what has God done for you? You may think, well, my testimony's not all that exciting. You know, I wasn't a part of the hell's angels. I didn't get delivered from demons. I didn't get delivered from drugs, you know, or whatever. But you know what? God still saved you, right? If you've believed on him, what has he done for you? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. As you came to the Lord, what has He done for you? How has He changed your life? This dramatic incident is most revealing. It shows what Satan does for a man. Satan robs him of sanity, of self control, fills him with fears, robs him of the joys of home and friends, condemns him to an eternity of judgment. It also reveals what society does for a man in need. Society restrains, isolates, threatens, but society is unable to change a person. See then what Jesus Christ can do for a man whose life is now whole. Its its bondage is broken. The man has been healed. Forgiveness has come. Salvation has come. And what Jesus did... For these two demoniacs, he will do for anybody. Go and tell what the Lord has done for you. You see, what does it take for people to see who Jesus truly is? Maybe it's just a word of testimony from you and me. But I can tell you this, because the world is watching us as we call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ. If we do it in a lukewarm fashion if we do it in a way where there's no mark of Christ on our lives and where there's no fruit, we talked about fruit last week as well, if there's no fruit, then what does the world see? What is their example? The world needs to see changed lives. And we can't change ourselves, right? God has to change us. The Lord has to change us. And so our prayer this morning as we close is, what does it take for us to count the cost and to follow the Lord? What does it take for people to see who Jesus truly is? And I pray that through my life, because he needs to do a work in my life, and in our lives, that he would do a work, and we would be open to it, and we would count the cost, and we would ponder, we would pray through the questions. What does it mean to count the cost and follow Jesus? Like those two men who came with their questions earlier. You see, I don't think the goal of Scripture, the goal of what we've studied today is for any of us to walk out of here feeling condemned. We should walk out of here feeling challenged, and if anything, feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. See, the conviction of the Spirit is toward restoration. It's moving us in the right direction. We don't walk out of here depressed and defeated. We walk out of here understanding that God loves us, and He wants to do so much more within my heart and through my life and through your life than, he's currently, than He currently has access to. You see, He wants more. He wants more of you. And He wants you to have more of Him. And that's the goodness of God at work in our lives. I forgot to mention earlier when I was praying for people, um, I had spoken with Anna. We prayed last week for her dad. And she, uh, they went out for the week and just got back. And she said that her dad uh, does have a worst-case scenario with his brain cancer. So uh, he has, at the most, a year to live if he, if he does all of their treatments. So uh, as we close this morning, uh, I also want to pray for him. I apologize that I forgot to mention that. So let's just close in a word of prayer this morning. Lord, we pray for um, Anna's dad. We bring him before your throne this morning, Lord. And we're, first of all, we're grateful that he knows you, that he's your son. But as we pray for him, Lord, we we ask if you would be gracious and if it's your will, would you spare his life and would you heal him? And Lord, if you choose to do something else, if you choose to, to allow this thing to progress, we pray that you would provide immeasurable grace and comfort during this time. And for the family, Lord, I can't imagine waking up one day, having a headache or a seizure, and then finding out you have this and your time is so short. So, Lord, please bring the Spirit of God and the Word of God to bear upon this family. Lord, minister to them. Bring healing to them if there's anything that needs to be um, brought to light or dealt with in these last days, if indeed that is the path. And we pray that you bring comfort to Anna and all her siblings and the grandchildren and everyone involved, Lord. And for what we've heard and considered here today, Lord, would would you bless us, Lord? Would you fill us up? Would you encourage us as we go? Would you stimulate us, Lord, to just open up our hearts to you in a more full and complete way. And Lord, may you have your way in us and may you bless us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.